So we wanted to achieve this big yeah. vision mission, but we hadn't really resourced the team to do that. And what I realized is that's the time for leadership. When you know you want to achieve something, you know it's the right thing both for the business, but also for the community, that's the time to step up. Real quick note, my family and I just got back from an incredible cruise with UnCruise. Now we'd experienced what cruising was like on a big ship with thousands of people. And frankly, it just wasn't for us, but this one was completely different. It was a small boat of less than 100. We had an amazing time where we saw whales and other wildlife, inspiring nature, hiking, kayaking, and bushwhacking, which is hiking without the trails. And we received incredibly personalized service guides who get you off the beaten path and gorgeous sunsets. Everything was so easy and with no lines. They provided incredible meals, including sustainable seafood, not to mention a list of impressive cocktails. My wife, daughter, and I loved it. When we returned, I asked UnCruise to become a show sponsor, and I was excited when they agreed. Right now, they're offering special deals on cruises in Baja, Mexico, and Alaska that includes the incredible luxury, service, and adventure that we experience. To learn more, go to benleads.com slash cruise. That's benleads.com slash cruise for the latest deals. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back to another great episode. Today, I have for you Radhika Dougal, who is the CMO at Super.com. And she previously served in senior leadership roles at companies you know like Chase, Pfizer, and Deloitte Consulting. Her She has an undergraduate degree from NYU and an MBA from Columbia. And Super.com, in case you're not familiar with it, three big numbers to know, 300 million users on their platform, $200 million saved by and for their customers, and then $2 billion in sales on their platform. Holy smokes. There's a lot going on at super.com. I'm glad we get to hear from one of their leaders today, Erotica. Welcome to Lead the Team. Thank you so much, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we get on, y'all, we're talking about New York City. We used to live in New York. She's lived there a long time. But before New York City, let's hear about where you came from, Erotica. Yeah, I uh, I grew up in a tiny little town called Big Flats, New York. It's in western New York, so on the border between upstate New York and Pennsylvania, um, and came to New York City for college. And wow, what a shock that was. Big Flats at the time had like a thousand people, a little bit more than that. And uh, fun fact I was sharing with Ben before we started recording is that the dorm I lived in my sophomore year of college had more than a thousand people in it. Mm. So uh over time, I've had to grow into loving New York. Yeah, that's a big, big change. And so what do you think growing up in a small town, what's something that it that it had for you that may, may have helped you along in your career as you went along? You know, I think growing up in a small town, what you realize is that relationships that you form and your own reputation stays with you. Because you are around the same people from the time you are born to the time you go to college, if you are fortunate. Yes, yes. And I think that that's that's very true in the world Mm. today. Everything you do 
in a work setting or in a personal setting stays with you because much of what you do is public. So make sure what you do is really representative of how you want to show up in the world. It prepared you for a world of social media, obviously. And I grew up in town. We were, we were 16 times bigger than your town, 16,000. Alexander City, Alabama, shout out. And yet everybody knew you and knew your business. And right. I, multiple times I was seen doing something like riding on the moped, although I wasn't supposed to ride on the moped. And before I got home, multiple people had called my dad and said, hey, I saw your son riding on the moped. I, I've heard that you told him he wasn't supposed to do that. Uh, so, yeah. I can see that. So now imagine that with the social media megaphone amplified. I like to always say, don't do anything that you don't want to show up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Good advice. Good advice. Yeah. That or yeah, I, I've heard it also stated, don't do anything that you wouldn't want to be asked about in an interview yep. by the Wall Street Journal. Similar thing. But the headline, ooh, yeah, let's hope it for all the good stuff here. So all right. So let's also dive into so fast forwarding, what has shaped your leadership perspective? You know, you you rattled off a number of really great places I've had the opportunity to work when you introduced me. Deloitte, Pfizer, J.P. Morgan Chase. I currently work at a company called Super.com. For perspective for folks, Super.com is a fintech and e-commerce company that helps consumers earn money, save money, and build credit. Being around really great leaders in all of those places is what has shaped my leadership perspective. And what I've learned from many lessons and many mistakes along the way is that leadership is really about driving towards a clear vision in an ambiguous situation because there's no clear situation in business, motivating those and motivating those around you to achieve that vision. Hmm. And I've learned kind of four very clear steps for how you do that. Number one, clearly and concisely tell a story about what you're trying to achieve because as people, we all want to gravitate towards the best story Number two, clearly set a roadmap and a vision for achieving that story. Number three, over-communicate everything about how you're going to achieve that roadmap. And number four, work hard to achieve it. And there's really no substitute for that fourth thing. When you said being around great leaders, what do you look for in a great leader? Yeah, I would say there there are a couple of things that I look for in great leaders. And and actually, it really follows that same pattern, right? Mm -hmm. First and foremost, I want to understand what that leader is championing. What are they passionate about? What's the story? What's the why? Second, I think great leaders take this very big vision and they break it down into very clear, actionable roadmaps for how you achieve that, that vision. And number three, I personally like to work with leaders who work as hard as they play. I have a lot of respect <laughs> for the folks who can get down into the details and really understand what it takes to execute that vision. Because yeah. I find a lot of the time, if the directive up here is misaligned with the ability to execute, you can't get it done. And so how has that translated in your career? Is there one specific moment where it really came in handy? Yeah. Um, you know, I, as I mentioned before, I, I've, I've had the opportunity to observe so much great leadership in my career. And oftentimes that great leadership, particularly at companies like Pfizer and JP Morgan Chase that are really tied to a mission, also super.com, very tied to a mission of helping consumers achieve X, Y, or Z. Uh, oftentimes it's, it's really mission driven. And a great example that comes to mind is at a time when I, I worked at a large bank and 
one of our goals as a team was to help underserved populations get access to banking. This is 2018, 2019, just the year prior. So in 2017, the FDIC had come out with a report that said 25% of the country, 25% of Americans are on or underbanked. Just that's crazy. It means they don't have access to banking in the way that you or I would go to a bank or use our mobile app to make a transaction. Instead, they go to Western Union and they pay $5 to cash a check. That is heartbreaking, particularly if you are someone that is of lower income. You need that $5 for food on the table. So our CEO had the vision of saying, hey, as a bank, we are responsible to enable all Americans to have access to these services, which in many ways save people a ton of money, make their lives less challenging. And, you know, as you and I know, the mission and the vision is very important, but then customer service and doing right by customers lives and dies in the execution, particularly in marketing. So for me as a marketer, I was trying to lead the marketing execution of that project. And what, what does that mean? It means doing research to understand who is the customer, what do they need? It means yeah. understanding how to communicate about it. It means then driving revenue for the product. And at a large company, like, like a large bank, you work together with a large group of people to do each of those functions. But unfortunately, we hadn't resourced the team to do that. So we wanted to achieve uh, this yeah. vision mission, but we hadn't, we, we hadn't really resourced the team to do that. And you know what I realized is that's the time for leadership, right? When you know you want to achieve something, you know it's the right thing, both for the business, but also for the community. That's the time to step up and start to share the story of who you're helping. So in order to do that, I had the opportunity to stood outside Western unions and started to talk to customers about why do you use this Western union where you pay money instead of going to the bank where oftentimes you mm -hmm. get things for free. And I, I read every book on the topic of being on an underbank that I could get my hands on because let's face it, like I'm not underbanked at the moment. And I wanted to understand what is the story? Why do people do this? And then I, then you take that story and you put it into every meeting with senior leaders in the company. And you tell the story of the people you're trying to help. And you couple that with a roadmap. Hey, we could achieve this outcome to help this group of people if we take these three to five steps. And here are the resources I need to do that. And what I learned was that by telling that story very concisely, very aggressively, and not giving up and volunteering to do the hard work, not only did we get the resources, we launched the product. And that was 2019. 2020 rolls around and there's mm -hmm. a lot of dialogue, both with Congress, but also with consumers about helping underbanked consumers. My God, were we lucky that we had a product off the shelf that we could use to help that group of people. Yeah, I love that. And that's such a, there's so many great things about that story. But from the listener standpoint, one of the big takeaways is, my goodness, what a great framework for making change inside big organizations where it can seem like nothing's changing at all ever because it's just such a monumental thing to do. To have this perspective as a leader, as an executive of What's the narrative? What's the story? And how do you make it compelling? And I love the way that you tied it back to it's the individuals that are underbanked and you spent time talking to them, understanding their stories. So when you're in the boardroom, you can really talk about not just the numbers, but the individuals that you're working with, because that's that's where the emotions ultimately generated. Yeah, I, I want to pick up on one or two things that you said there. One of them was that's the narrative of making change in a large company. 
I've said this a couple of times in a couple of very public forums, but mm-hmm. having had the opportunity to work across management consulting, across startups and Fortune 100 companies, one of the things mm-hmm. I've learned is that though we believe the those work situations to be very different, I found them to be quite similar. The skill sets you yep. need to drive change in each of those types of organizations to me has been the same across my career. And so this notion of storytelling, making clear impact what the impact is, having a clear roadmap over communicating and doing the hard work. For me, I, I found success with that roadmap in all three of those types of work environments. Are there specific story frameworks that you that you like to utilize? Yeah, I, I think this actually depends on what motivates the people that you're speaking to. Mm-hmm. So for example, I work in a company where a lot of the folks on my team, like me, are driven by the mission of helping we serve essentially average Americans and help them earn money, save money, build credit. And so the folks on my team are very focused on understanding the impact we have on individuals. There are folks in other teams on our company that are very focused on their own professional growth. And Super.com, in my experience, is a place that enables you to quote unquote, supercharge your career, right? Get like very different, very aggressive, very fast learning experiences mm-hmm. in ways that I haven't seen elsewhere. So I think it's, for me, it, how you motivate is less about the framework for the story and more about understanding the person that you're trying to motivate. What are they looking for? Mm-hmm. Then tell a story mm-hmm. focused on that, share the, the roadmap over communicate, do work alongside them. Yeah. When I, I've done storytelling in different environments. I think about I think about from a podcast standpoint a lot, but also, and, and you already shared one great story with us. I think about uh, for the framework of Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey, and things of that nature. Um, I've done some storytelling from the stage, like the like mm-hmm. looking at the moth and some of those other story storytelling um, forums, and. As a leader, I think it's so important to get curious about that. Like, what is your, what, how do you tell stories effectively? What are the situations that you can use them in? And a lot of times, maybe a lot of people want to make a change, but the one that tells the story most effectively is the one that actually ends up doing it. (laughs) I I think that's, that's right. And it is always the person that can capture the hearts and minds of the audience, no matter who the audience is. Yeah. that wins the day. And then how do you do that? Well, you understand what matters to that audience and tailor your story to that person and their goals. So what ended up happening with that, with the initiative for underserved banking, I guess, underserved banking communities, underserved yeah. people, that, basically people who are not utilizing bank accounts effectively. Yeah, who who typically may not have had access to banking even. Yeah, don't have access. Uh, well, you know, the good news was we launched that product. It was March of 2019, 2020 rolled around and it was COVID. And there was a lot of conversation, both with Congress as well as with consumers, right? A lot of protests around lack of access for various things. And banking was one of those things. So that product was one from a consumer retail perspective that we used to essentially supercharge Mm -hmm. our efforts in that time when serving those customers was of huge interest. And I'm really proud to say that when I left J.P. Morgan Chase uh, in 2022, that product was the, uh, among the fastest growing on our shelf. And right. yeah, that's that. That's something that made me feel like my time there made impact on others. And I'm really proud of that. 
Yeah, I think that really shows the power of story, the power of narrative, and my goodness, I mean, what happens for people when they get access to banks after not having it? Like, what? How does that supercharge their lives? Yeah. So I'll share um, kind of two two ways of thinking about it. So mm-hmm. when I worked there, one of the things we wanted to be able to quantify was exactly what you just said. Like, what happens? So, so what? And through some research, what we learned is when consumers used our product and compared to when they didn't have access to banking, they saved around $50 a month. $50 a month mm-hmm. is $600 a year. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. In my current role, we help consumers earn money, save money, build credit, et cetera. And what we've found is that part of it is about access to credit building. That's very, very important, which is a traditional mm-hmm. banking service. And that, again, can help you save money through cheaper mortgage rates, through cheaper personal loan rates, et cetera. But what we know to be true from speaking to customers, I speak to at least two customers a week nowadays, is that this problem of earning money is at the crux of what holds them back. And so as we develop our product roadmap, one of the things we're really focused on at super.com is better enabling people to learn to earn money in the first place. Once people have a little mm-hmm. bit more wealth, they're better able to save. They're therefore better able to access traditional credit building vehicles. They get entree into the traditional banking system. So I'm seeing a theme in your career emerging beyond just the storytelling. It's helping people save money with their with their money essentially from banking services. Is this something that is sort of at the heart and soul of the of what you want to do in the world, having gone from banking to, to super.com? Or is this just the place where you get to express your your superpowers? Well, I will say I'm I'm particularly passionate about this topic. Since 25% of the country it, it was under underbanked in 2017. That was not that long ago. And if you talk to some of our consumers, you can see the massive impact that makes. That means people are not able to afford a home, right? American dream is not accessible to me. That means people fall into the more than 50% of the population that doesn't have $400 saved, can't afford an emergency. What this really ladders up to is that people don't have the ability to have financial stability. So they conti- they make trade-offs every day on, do I feed my family or do I take the subway? No, I'm going to walk five miles because I need the $2.90 it costs to take the subway. You just don't feel stable and secure. And so, yeah, I feel incredibly passionate about trying to help people achieve just a little bit of that financial stability. I think that that impact it can have not only on one generation, but multiple generations is significant. Are you looking to increase sales, grow your brand, and share your leadership message? Then check out our business podcast program. Each week, more people listen to podcasts than have Netflix accounts, and one-third of the U.S. population listens to podcasts regularly. So your customers and team are already listening to podcasts. It should be yours. Discover our five-step profitable podcast framework and what results you can expect for your company by setting up a 20-minute call with my team at benleads.com slash schedule. That's benleads.com slash schedule. What's the most important leadership trait that leaders and their teams need to keep in mind right now? 
From my perspective, it is closing your mouth and listening. I think too often leaders, and I'm guilty of this myself. In fact, my New Year's resolution is to close my mouth and listen more. <laughs> and that was that has been my New Year's resolution for several years. So I'm, I'm a work in progress. But I think too often leaders come with the answer. And the reality is folks on our teams are much more equipped to give the answer if we enable them to, and their answer is probably better than ours. So if we shut our mouths, listen to others' perspective, and then form our opinion, I think businesses will be better for it. But I think importantly, the people on our teams will be better for it as well. That, my friend, is a hard habit to change. Working on it. Yeah. And for the listeners, everybody's probably like, oh, yeah, I'm going to listen more. But actually do it. That's a completely different ball game because leaders have been rewarded for speaking their mind, sharing their ideas, telling people what to do. So all these things that make us feel valuable. And now you're saying we should be quiet. So what, so this is your resolution. What are you, how are you going to actually execute on listening more? Because you're going to finish this interview and someone's going to come in and probably ask you a question because you got a heck of a resume <laughs> and you're a great leader. So, because just from the listeners, like, how do you think through this actually executing something like that? So uh, I'll say a couple of things. First and foremost, this was also my, resu- my resolution last year. And what I learned, <laughs> so again, work in progress. But what I learned from last year was the more I stopped talking and started listening, mm. The more I gained a more well-rounded perspective of the questions being asked, both of myself, of my team, of our leadership team at super.com, et cetera, Mm -hmm. the more I listened to others' perspectives, actually, the more successful I was at convincing them to my perspective, if that was warranted. If it wasn't, then we came to a better outcome anyway. And the reason I was more successful in in the situations that warranted it at convincing people to think about it from my perspective was because I understood them better. Because I enabled them to feel heard. When you understand someone better, you're better able to craft an argument that makes sense to them. When you enable people to be heard, they come to the situation feeling better and feeling like their voice matters, no matter what outcome you get to. So I will say part of how I'm executing it on it this year is reminding myself of a modicum of success I had last year. The other thing I'm doing, and this is a bit sillier, I am trying to, my, I have a three-year-old daughter. I'm trying to make sure she doesn't turn out like me and love sugar. I'm like, I'm obsessed with sugar. So every time, every time I interrupt someone, I keep a tally in my notebook of, oh, oh shit, I interrupted someone. Every time I interrupt someone, I have to give her one chocolate chip in her yogurt, which is what she asks for at breakfast every morning, not many mornings. So I am like really focused on not giving away the chocolate chips because I really don't want her to turn out like me in this way. And in some way, that's like a crazy, silly incentive to just stop interrupting people. Wow. What a reminder. And so you're able to catch yourself when you interrupt. And you put a little tally mark. You're like, oh, that's one chocolate chip down. And I really, I'm really crazy about not trying to keep her away from sugar. So it hurts me. Yeah. They always say things like with the young kids, feed them vegetables before you give them the fruit and the, this keep, <laughs> but prioritize chocolate chips when they're babies 
Just kidding. Uh, no, <laughs> no I, I think it's great. I think that's a great, there's an incentive, something that you really care about. And that's a great way for any habit to attach it to something that you really care about. So you can have that reminder. And I can just see you in a meeting. Oh, there's one chocolate chip down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's two chocolate cool. chips down. <laughs> and what you just said is the point. Listen, the chocolate chip example is silly, but very relevant to me, right? Other people may or may not care about that. But what I've tried to do is create a tactical penalty for myself for something I really care about. And, you know, helping my daughter grow into a healthy person is something I really care about. So the penalty means something to me and it motivates me to do better. Once a time you had an unexpected twist or failure in your career, and how did it lead to your success or growth on down the road? So one thing I'll say is I fail at something more than once every day. And I think well, I as a parent, but but also at work, right? <laughs> especially as a parent. Oh, I, I lose the negotiation every day as a parent. Mm-hmm. So that that's that's a failure in itself. But also at work, like I, I think one thing, um, we talk about big failures a lot. I want to maybe talk a little bit about small failures because I think failure is actually potentially a vehicle for obtaining success. So in in the work environment in which I have the privilege of working, I have a thousand things to do every day and I only achieve a small number of those things. And what I've learned over time is there are some things I need to do 110%, absolutely perfectly and correctly. And there are most things that I can get to the 80% mark at. Mm. And in some environments, my 80% job would be considered a failure. But in the environment I operate in today, we prioritize in some ways speed over perfect uh, perfection. So one thing I will say is like failure is a very relative thing and it's in the eye of the beholder. And what I might have considered a failure when I worked at a larger company and my in the environment today, I considered getting it 80% right. Wow. Yeah. It's so the 20% that's not necessarily like you're you're allowing yourself that huge margin and you're exchanging it for speed and learning. And yeah. I like thinking about that because man, if you you can learn faster by doing more and not getting into perfection, then you're actually probably going to get closer to perfection, but maybe over the, over the long haul. Yeah. And then the other thing is I'll answer your question very directly. When I say I fail at something once or twice every day, in a lot of the roles that I have the privilege of working in, you know, we're always testing to find new channels to drive new revenue, right? A lot of marketing is about that. How do you bring in more business by spending in many cases, millions of dollars to do so. And I've run many, many, many a channel test that's failed. In fact, more fail and therefore lose millions of dollars than those that succeed. But that is actually the goal of testing. Hmm. The goal is to figure out what works and know that more times than not, nine out of 10 times you'll fail. And I think what I've learned from that is to give myself and my teams the grace to fail means they'll find that one thing that can supercharge and scale the business. And I, and I think this this notion that failure on an everyday basis is what actually drives your business forward isn't something we necessarily talk about enough. But that's literally yeah, how. That's good. Is yeah, I can see that you really have an entrepreneurial mindset. From what I'm hearing, 
you don't always expect to hear that from someone that has big logo company experience, but they to move things forward, you need to fail more in process of elimination, process of fine tuning. And then you get better at failing. You don't bet the whole farm. You don't go, you don't play roulette where you're like, okay, I'll put all my money in Vegas on day one on red. And then you either hit the jackpot or you go broke on your Vegas trip. You had more money to spend. Instead, you're sort of spacing it out, doing smaller bets, you know, piloting, doing tests. And looking at it as an everyday experience makes it a lot easier to, to execute on. And double down on the things that work and stop the things that don't work. I think very often we we are from our heart hard pressed to stop the things that don't work. But I think admitting some things just don't work and moving away from those things is really critical. Do you have a favorite? That just, a favorite. A favorite that just you wanted to work. You put so much time, blood, sweat, and tears, and it just didn't work. It was hard to let go of. Yeah, I, I will say um, there was a time when I was marketing a, a, a medication, and I was very convinced, and, and the medication was marketed towards mothers for their children to consume or to take. And I was convinced that a community that enabled parents to have a conversation about what they were going through as their, as their children were struggling, struggling with this disease state would work. And you know what? It turns out that parents are ashamed of their ch- child having this disease state. I'm not saying they should be ashamed, but they t- that's the consumer. Yeah, they behavior. felt shame in that. Yeah. yeah. So interacting with someone and talking about it, and this is many, many years ago, wasn't well received by them. They didn't participate. They didn't communicate with each other. We would share stories of patients and nobody would respond. And I think that there's just a reality that once Mm. you find you don't have that reception, you stop, take your money elsewhere and do something else. Wow. That must've been hard. And then it's, that's just the reality, right? A great idea. Yeah. Great medication, but sometimes it's just insurmountable. And you can well, medication works, but the way you get people talking about it, that wasn't the way, and that was okay. Yeah, really good example. I think about my first book, The Quit Alternative, and I wanted to call it The Burnout Bible, which is a terrible idea. And the publisher was like, Ben, for someone to buy the Burnout Bible, they have to admit they're burned out. And no one wants it first, and secondly, it's a terrible name. And thirdly, can you imagine for your birthday unwrapping <laughs> your gift and someone gave you the Bible? I think this is a practical joke. Sounds <laughs> like an accusation. I was like, I was like okay, I'm going to let go of that. And it's the quit alternative now, which now, I like just, it. now, which now just gets confused with smoke. People trying to stop smoking sometimes. I've gotten a few emails about that. I thought this book was, I went, did you read the description? It's not going to help you stop smoking. It's going to help you stop sizzling from your burnout, quitting your job. Well, you've done, you framed what appears like a negative title, right? Burnout Bible and into something positive. Quitting actually, in my opinion, when people are quitting, they're thinking about a new opportunity per the description. And I assume it's not about smoking and about quitting your job. Um, right, right. So that is a positive thing in, in, in many ways because it means it comes with the next opportunity. I love hanging out with the great marketing minds. 
by Radhika. I love it. I absolutely love it. All right. Starting to wrap this up. There's a lot of questions I didn't get to today. Uh, I'm going to sort of turn it over to you, though. Uh, what's a parting thought that you'd like to share with our listeners here? You know, one of the things I think resonated the most with my team as we went from sort of the, the high point of the market and VC money being readily available to a little bit of a bumpier time in 23 and a focus on profitability is this notion of resilience. Mm. We've, we've talked a lot about it as a team. And I think resilience really, really matters because no matter what the market situation looks like, we all run into challenges and roadblocks. And everyone experiences highs and lows and change is constant. And we've talked a lot about as a team, every one of us needs a tactical toolkit for how we can put resilience into action. For me, I do three things. I control what I can. I adapt my expectations to the situation. And I try to be very persistent. And what I've found that is that intentionally cultivating a discipline of resilience within the team has an, enabled us to be logical, to be level-headed when we approach change. And the other thing I've heard back from many team members is we, we have meetings intentionally focused on resilience where we share stories about how we personally cultivated resilience that typically have nothing to do with work, that those are the best meetings that the team members have had because not only do we get that tactical guidance on how to be more resilient, we get to know each other a little bit better as well. So you don't have to reveal the name. But maybe share one of the best resilience stories uh, that you've heard in those staff meetings. So I've heard resilience stories, everything from personal sort of medical or health situations mm -hmm. where many things are outside of one's control to situations where folks have been trying to save a business entirely from scratch by themselves and everything in between. I think what resonates the most is just the if how that thing or that challenge weighed on that person and what very tactically that person did to overcome it. So again, control what you can, adapt your expectations, be persistent. Different people had different versions of those three things. And we all took that as coaching and guidance so that we could think about what would we do when we need that resilience next time. Well, what a cool framework to tell your resistance story or your resilient story, because I mean, you're like, and I, I love the idea of you making them the stars, your team the stars to share their personal stories, to make it a better way to connect other than, hey, what was your, how was your weekend? Nothing wrong with that question, but y'all, really, do we need to have asked that question to get in the staff meeting? What about a time when you had to be resilient? And you, and they might say, well, I don't know about that, but then you give a great framework a time when you needed to focus on what you could control versus not health. You know, we focus outside of your control. It's a nightmare, right? You're just, you, it weakens your state. You have no options. And just by shifting that locus of control, it's powerful. I love what you said too about adapting your expectations. That That's really hard because if you had hopes and dreams of having a big year, or you're going to hit your goals and you're going to get that bonus and take that great trip. And that may not be available in the current state of the environment. Focus on ad adaptation there 
is huge. And then, of course, persistence is just like that's where it all comes together. I, I will say, though, yeah. ha- trying to have that conversation in the midst of the everyday workday is very hard. So one of the things we do <laughs> a little heavy. Yeah, for that, yeah. No, nobody, nobody's in the mind space to have that very heavy conversation. Yeah. So we have been taking specific time out to have that conversation blocked on the calendar for that purpose. We talked about it at an offsite, et cetera. Um, I, I think getting, enabling people to get out of the headspace of, well, I've got to make that change to my creative versus, oh, I need to be thinking about and talking about something that matters to me in my life. Making that transition requires time and space. Yeah. Re- really great thing to note for the listeners today. If you just drop this on them right in the staff meeting, they'll be like, whoa, what's happening? But, like, why are we having a conversation? Yeah. Like, am I about to get fired? Are you telling me I need to be resilient? So I'm about to get fired. You're like, no, I just, so I may be like preparing them. Hey, we're going to talk about this because this is a trait that I think is yeah. important. And what I like about it, you know, you've probably been in a lot of trainings yourself because I'm assuming this is maybe coming from that where, you know, yes, you can train somebody. But if you identify what you'd like to instill, and then you ask them to think about a time when it's been apparent to them that they've utilized it, it helps you shortcut so much of how you instill that that specific quality because they're already making that connection. I think that's right. And I think also modeling that behavior yourself. The first time we had this conversation, I shared for myself an experience that was rather personal that was hard for me to say out loud. And I think that builds a little bit of credibility that shows that you kind of eat your own cooking or whatever the right analogy is and, and that you really believe it. Oh, I, I, for a while in several interviews, I kept you saying the expression, um, you don't want to be the baker who wouldn't eat their own pie or something like that. Yeah. Finally, someone put a comment. I really enjoyed, you know, lead the team, but I'm really tired of hearing that expression about the baker. Oh, no. You don't want to be the baker who won't throw a pie, which I don't even know where that came from, but it may but be related don't. to the stuff. But you don't want to be that person, right? Like you, you want to be authentic. So, so again, this goes back to the way we started the show about, you know, you, you grow up in big flats, New York. You want to make sure that who the way you show up in the world is the way you intend to show up in the world. And part of that starts with being authentic and only saying and doing the things and asking of others what you're willing to say and do and ask of yourself. So from big flats to the big apple. Love it. Radhika, I mean, in the house in a big way today. Thank you for joining us on the team. So much good stuff. And a Looking forward to sharing this, and I guess we'll have to do a round two sometime. That sounds excellent. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you enabling me to share my perspective. Would you or your CEO be a good fit for this podcast? If you know a uniquely talented leader who has a story to share and a message to deliver, then we'd love to host them on the show. Go to benleads.com slash apply to fill out a quick form where you can let us know a little bit about yourself, and my team will take a look to see if we're a good fit. That's benleads.com slash apply. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.